Thank you for listening to the Bend ICOC podcast. But I just want to share about Christ's principles in Ephesians 4. It says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's a pretty high calling. That's a lot of things. That's a lot of ones right there. And I love that a lot of people have looked at that scripture and said, what are we called to in one church, one Lord, one baptism? So they've said, hey, let, let's try to make first principles match this a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so one Lord, well, we, we do talk about lordship when we have our discipleship study. Mm-hmm. One faith, you know, we go through the word of God. One God, we talk about seeking God. One hope, we talk about the cross. That's our hope in Christ Jesus. One baptism, we can talk about light and darkness or New Testament conversions. Max. Oh, what was that scripture? Just Ephesians 4. Um, Ephesians 4, it really begins um, in verse 4. It's where you have there's one body, one spirit. One baptism, you know, we hit that light and darkness, amen? Yeah. Or a New Testament conversion type of a study. One body, we have a church study that we like to get into. And then you even have one spirit. Sometimes we like to have a Holy Spirit follow-up study. The kingdom, it, it doesn't say one kingdom right there in Ephesians 4. The kingdom is something that's very important. And it can be a follow-up study. For some, though, it can be very, very helpful studying it out before baptism. Um, who wants to throw out any guesses why the kingdom of God is important? Jesse and then AJ. It's what Jesus spent all of his time talking about. All his time talking about, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think of the scriptures, seek first the kingdom and then Jesus. Yeah. yeah, seek first the kingdom. Luke 4, 43 says this, but he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Purpose to preach the kingdom. Hey, Amy. Jesus, yeah, he, he talked about the kingdom all the time. He only mentioned forgiveness of sins and salvation about a handful of times, maybe six times. I need to be born again. He only talked to Nicodemus about it once. Um, he only mentioned the church twice. Uh, I think the word church itself is in the gospel only three times. my notes. The kingdom, though, over a hundred times mentioned throughout the Gospels, throughout all his parables. I believe 87 times is the number for how many times Jesus just said the kingdom is this or the kingdom is that. Over a hundred times. He instructed his disciples when they went out to preach, hey, preach about the kingdom of God. So getting into this study, it can be a theological study, and that appeals to some people. I know it appealed to me when I got into it. I thought this is one of the coolest studies. Madison was similar. Um, but it is really good to focus on the lifestyle rather than the theology. What kind of a lifestyle does a kingdom citizen have? What do kingdoms look like? What does this heavenly and earthly kingdom look like under King Jesus? Let's focus on the lifestyle getting into the study. When, I admit, and probably 
every guy I've studied with and baptized, I've done a kingdom study with him. Um, and, and usually that was just to get him to come out to more meetings of the body, something like that. And so I, I would emphasize heavily, hey, kingdom of God is a church. Church is manifested here on earth. King in Acts 2 and kingdom came with power. And, and that worked for a lot of these guys who got baptized. It really helped them to seek first the kingdom, as AJ said. But it can be good for a few different things. And if you go to the next one, we, Madison and I said, for the purpose of this study is to inspire the rule and reign of King Jesus in your day-to-day life on earth. So you, you could have a purpose of, hey, somebody should seek the kingdom, come to meetings of the body. But if Jesus is their king, if he's their ruler, they would want to follow him be with his people. In this study, you'll see the continuity of the Old and New Testaments through prophecy. I think that's very valuable in this study, seeing the continuity, the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures in the New Testament. So you got to calibrate this. you got to be a Berean. you got to study out these scriptures yourself. It, it's, not, it's not wise to simply take it as a script and deliver it and say the kingdom of God is this, and here's how it should apply to your life. If somebody is struggling to have faith in Jesus, I would actually focus on Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah and how they're fulfilled in the Gospels with Jesus. And you can show the continuity of Old Testament, New Testament, how they were fulfilled in Jesus. Or if somebody's struggling with their faith, I'd do that same thing. Um, different, different areas of focus for different people. Again, it's a study where there's not going to be a lot of interaction. You're not going to call somebody to a decision after every single scripture in the study. Some of them are just one-liners. So you're going to start out the study, and we've been sort of studying with Becky, so I'm going to use Becky. I did want to clarify if somebody was concerned. Um, women are probably going to study with women, and men are going to study with men, so I'm not studying with Becky in this scenario. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> A woman would probably know how to study with Becky better than I know how to study with Becky. I'll just say that. So you're going to ask, hey, does the Bible fit together before you do a kingdom study with somebody? And if they struggle with seeing how the Old Testament fits in with the New Testament, this is a great study to do with somebody. You're going to ask them, hey, what is the kingdom of God? What does that look like? When did it come? And how does someone enter the kingdom? Those are the questions you'll explore. For me, when I first came into the study, and, and Becky might say, well, I think, I think the kingdom of God, that's sort of like heaven, and that's when revelation happens, and that's the kingdom of God. If she's a person like me who never really read the Bible, never really focused on Pentecost, because that's what the super spiritual people did, you know, it's kind of scary, kind of too much about the Holy Spirit. And I would have said, yeah, kingdom of God, that, that's heaven. My emphasis would have been it's about heaven. So I needed to hear what the earthly kingdom of God looked like in this study. The kingdom is used, and you can go to the next slide. The kingdom of God is defined as his royal power, his kingship, his dominion, the rule and reign of the Messiah. The ecclesia of the church, that's simply the gathering, the assembly, the called out. It, it wasn't a religious term, ecclesia. Jesus didn't choose a religious term. If anything, it was just a social or even a political term. Ecclesia. So they're not directly interchangeable, but again, one of the greatest manifestations of the kingdom here on earth is the church, full of disciples. Kingdom is used over 104 times in the Gospels. Church, church is used three times. And 
and we can hit the next slide. It's something that I grew up studying out, and I kind of call it sort of pop theology, because I learned about it in second grade, and every teacher told me that things were happening in every grade since then. In the private school I went to, which is uh, premillennialism, and this is sort of your, your heavy focus on like the, the Left Behind series. Heavy focus on interpretation that focuses a lot on the last days, on Revelation, saying, you know, it's approaching soon, people might talk about, you may have heard this is, don't get the microchip, or, you know, 666, things like that. I could go on, you could read the definition yourself. Um, it's, it, it often appeals to emotions. And it can often be used in preaching as Jesus is coming back, the world is about to end, so that should be your motivation to repent right now. You don't want to go through this tribulation, you don't want to go through this. So as, as disciples, I'd really call us we got to figure out what to do with that. We can't just avoid the book of Revelation and say, well, I'm not touching that, or that's not important. But when we're studying with Becky and new people coming into the Bible, they often want to say, well, yes, I'll read the Bible. I think I'll start with Revelation, because that seems like a really exciting book. And we want to say, no, you should start in the Gospels. Or you should read through the Sermon on the Mount. That really shows you what kingdom citizens look like. Amen? It's premillennialism. It, I, I would even say the Jews were looking for a physical kingdom, right? Physical mm -hmm. manifestation. Third century, again, we're, we're going to war with one another over religion, and the kingdom gets kind of physical again. Same thing with looking forward to the future messianic kingdom. People are kind of looking for that physical kingdom on earth again. Woo! Michelle! <laughs> There's a great... N.T. Wright book about Revelation, as well as a great Gordon Ferguson book, My Eyes Have Seen Glory. Gordon Ferguson has written about this. And it's good to go through Revelation, but also it's good to be open to what are the last days, what was fulfilled in Jesus' time, in Roman times, and what do we still have to look forward to. Eschatology, there's a bit of this when we took communion on Sunday, a bit of looking forward Looking forward to the future, you know, we took communion with joy. Hey, Jesus is coming back. That's a joyful thing. We call that theology eschatology, looking forward to the final judgment of humankind. The kingdom study does not focus on premillennialism or eschatology or the future kingdom. In fact, it's very good, again, for me, with my pop theology or just seeing these popular books like Left Behind. That was my idea of the kingdom. The kingdom study is about Jesus' kingdom, his rule, his reign, what that looks like here on earth. Amen? Mm -hmm. And if anyone wants to talk about premillennialism more, um, I can do that afterwards. So, if we could go to the next slide. Uh, really, the kingdom study I'm presenting tonight, it's the, the classic kingdom study, classic scriptures that have been used um, for years and years. Except the very first scripture I've inserted in there is Exodus 19 that some people have started to use, and the very last scripture I've inserted in there. So it's actually chronological. The very first scripture, very last scripture are ones that I was inspired by other study series to put in there. It shows Old Testament and New Testament chronology and continuity. Could I get, actually, if we start with Michelle and go around the room as these scriptures come up, could you read Exodus 19? Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you, will, which you shall speak to the children of Israel. 
children of Israel. Awesome. So you typically start out the kingdom studies saying, hey, here's the Old Testament, here's the law. You know, the, the height of Israel's glory of their physical kingdom was under King David in 1000 BC. Uh, this is actually about 1400 BC. This is right before they signed the Sinai Covenant. Uh, not exactly signed, but when they made the Sinai Covenant with God. I apologize for that. And uh, so it's important. God is saying, hey, this is the people I want you to be. This is how I want you to represent me in my kingdom. It mentions the kingdom right here. But you want to ask Becky, all right, so this is, they're about to go into the height of their glory. Did Israel fulfill this vision of the kingdom for God? From this, what kind of people did God want his people to be in his kingdom? And she can look, oh, okay, priests. Wow, okay. So what, what's true of the kingdom? What, what's true of any kingdom? An earthly kingdom, physical kingdom? Becky might say, well, you know, it has a leader. Good, yeah, definitely. You want to definitely affirm that Jesus is the leader of the kingdom. It has a leader. It has subjects. People have an allegiance to a kingdom. Um, so many great kingdom analogies that you could go into. You could ask Becky, all right, so what is true of priests if we're to be a kingdom of priests? She might say, yeah, priests are pretty holy. Priests, they're very close to God. They have a relationship with God, perhaps. So, yeah, that's right. That's right. So did Israel become what God wanted Israel to become? Did it fulfill this scripture? And Becky might have read a little bit of the Old Testament, and we know that oftentimes Israel failed to fulfill the many covenants with God. They always disobeyed. And we fast forward to Jesus' time, and we'll begin to see in Jesus' time really a kingdom of Israel, Pharisees, they're still looking for a physical kingdom. Mm -hmm. They're kind of judgmental towards other people, towards outsiders. They're not exactly living up to the scripture. So Peter reminds us over in 1 Peter 2.9, and this would actually be the scripture I'd throw in at the end of the study, that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a treasured possession, a valuable possession to God, a special possession, he says. We're the holy nation, a royal priesthood. Revelation even says that we are those who serve God as both kings and priests. Revelation 1.6. So we'll, we'll hit that Peter scripture towards the end. Next slide, and Nadia, could you read Isaiah 2, 1 through 4? Can you say, okay, Becky, we're going to go forward in time to Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, 750 B.C. Now it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall, shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Awesome. So you'd ask, okay, Becky, line one right there, when does this say the kingdom will come? And she might look at this whole scripture and go, well, it doesn't talk about the kingdom, right? And you could say, yeah, well, in Old Testament, um, in Old Testament language here, when, when it's talking about the mountain, the mountains are kingdoms. Oh, okay, so when will it come, first line there? Well, in the last days. You can see, yeah, this is the time of the Messiah, and we'll show you that in the New Testament. That's when the last days begin. Mountain of the Lord is the chief of the mountains. So you could ask Becky, if the mountain of the Lord's temple describes the kingdom of God, and the other mountains describe the nations of this world. And what is this passage teaching us? 
you'd say, well, yeah, it seems like this kingdom is going to trump the other kingdoms. You could say, what's going to stream to it? Well, the other nations, all nations, and to which city? And she can say, Jerusalem. What kind of impact will the kingdom of God have on humanity? And reading through this, we can say, well, it seems like it will have a great impact, one that will affect all nations. Lexi, could I have you read Daniel 2, 31 through 45? So you say, all right, we're, we're going to be looking for these mountains. Hopefully you can see it from there. Going forward to about 550, 600 BC, these numbers are round. And we're going to look at some of this mountain terminology again. I'll say this, if you're pressed for time, these are both great scriptures, but perhaps you leave out Isaiah or perhaps you leave out Daniel too. And it, it's great to know that, you know, that the head of gold represents um, Babylon, but you don't need to know that before getting baptized necessarily. So just remember that. Alexi. Uh, your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that stood or that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you were the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Awesome. Thanks, Lexi. Awesome. Becky would go, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> you just read right there. Um, it is a lot. The study is a lot. And I actually meant to ask at the beginning, who, uh, who's who been a part of the kingdom study before? A good, good amount of hands. Uh, a lot of people haven't because a lot of people sort of, in, in recent times have started to leave it off or just use it as a follow-up study. So we want to make sure to be slow as we go through this because not everyone has been through a kingdom study. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's good to go through this. I'm happy we're going through it now. In the time of those kings. Wow, so the kingdom's going to be in the time of these kings it's talking about. But even before that, well, I'll just talk about my underlines right here. In the time of those kings, it's going to endure forever, okay? Um, not by human hands, so who, whose hands would that be? Well, maybe God's hands. Yeah. And as we go through the scriptures, we want to begin to emphasize at every opportunity, King Jesus. Who's the king of the kingdom? We want to emphasize Jesus. So this is kind of the first hint of doing that. Back in Exodus 19, you're talking about what kingdom citizens look like. Now we're beginning to see when the kingdom will come. It's going to be the focus of a lot of the scriptures. You could go to the next slide. And this is what I advise most people to do. Show Becky a diagram of this, an illustration of this on your phone. Um, or if you have a study Bible, you might have an illustration of it right there in your Bible. I know I did in my study Bible. It's very hard to keep up with all these verses, with all these different levels of the statue. So I just pop up in my study Bible or look it up on Google Images and say, here, look at this statue. People really need a picture of this. Mm -hmm. And be careful you pick the right statue, because again, some can get a little premillennial towards the bottom here. So let's talk about the bottom. Let's talk about each phase. Good to show Becky this. Good to emphasize in the beginning as well, okay, Daniel's interpreting this dream, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Right now, the nation of Israel, they're in captivity. They've been banished away from their homeland. The kingdom is not looking great for the nation of Israel. They're in captivity. But it's great. Daniel interprets this dream, and then he glorifies God. He says, no, it's not my interpretation. It's a good interpretation. It's God's interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's a, a polytheist, he believes in all these gods, and there's all these wise guys of all these gods, they can't get the dream together. So, uh, I won't list it off myself, but, well, okay, I will. Head of gold is Babylon. The Medes and the Persians, they come in, they conquer Babylon. Uh, history buffs will love this, I know I loved this. Um, Medes and the Persians, they would be the chest and the arms of silver. The belly and the thighs of bronze, that's the kingdom of ancient Greece. Alexander the Great conquered the whole world. The legs of iron, that's the kingdom of Rome. Then you get down to the feet of iron and clay, and this particular statue says ancient Rome and restored Rome. This thing with the feet, at one point in the Roman Empire, it's split. Split in two, eastern and western. Two feet. Also with the Roman Empire, the rock hits at the feet. So where is this rock going to come? Well, at the feet of this statue. It's worth noting. This kingdom is going to last forever. There we go. Um, part clay and part iron. At first, it's going to be really strong. Then it says, hey, the, the clay is going to be mixed in here. The Roman Empire is very strong. At first, it's set up with a dictatorship. But then over time, it becomes more of a democracy, becomes more of different people, different cultures, different races, all being mixed together, being kind of that mixed clay with one another, where, hey, you can keep your culture, you can keep your little kingdom, but you just be subjugated to us, the Roman Empire. So that's why it's partly mixed with clay down at the bottom there. Jesus is going to help start the kingdom. Again, this rock, not by human hands, not by humans themselves, but by God, by Jesus. Then that rock, of course, becomes a mountain, fills the whole earth. It's a kingdom that will endure forever and never be destroyed, in verse, 40, in verse 44. 
Uh, if you go over to Daniel 7, there's another great prophecy that I wouldn't get into unless somebody is really wanting to get into these prophecies. But Daniel 7, 8, it brings up the saints again. It says, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. And you probably had a discipleship study with somebody at this point. So as they talk about what does a priest look like, what does a holy person look like, you can say, yeah, that's a disciple. What does a disciple look like? You can go to the next slide, Lewis. Amy. Now we're in the New Testament, 25 AD. Can you grab that for us? Thoughts are getting smaller and smaller, scriptures larger and larger. <laughs> In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Oh, and the Oh, that's another one I threw in there on 11, yeah. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I am not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Awesome. So that's worth noting. It's great scripture to bring up because we see that happen later. This fire coming. But you want to ask, okay, so has the kingdom of God come yet? Has this mountain thing happened yet? John the Baptist says, no, it's coming near. Other translations, you might say, it's at hand. It's a hand's length away. It's very near. It's cool to think about. Jesus is around right now, right? Jesus himself is near. Kingdom of God is coming very, very near. And of course, John is just the one proclaiming Jesus is on the way. I even love um, him talking about he's not worthy to even hold the sandals, touch the feet of Jesus. There's a lot of old messianic prophecies about the messenger who will come, um, a very royal type of king messenger to come and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. You can fulfill a lot of scriptures just emphasizing that right there. But he says repent, and that shows great continuity throughout all the gospel and even the New Testament. It's the first word of John the Baptist in his ministry. It's the first word of Jesus' gospel. He's going to say repent for the kingdom of God is near. It's the first word in the ministry of the apostles over in Mark 6.12. They're going to preach repent, kingdom of God. Um... It's the instructions he gave even after his resurrection. Luke 24, he says, repent. Uh, the first Christian sermon by Peter, we see repentance preached right there. It's the first word out of Paul's ministry in Acts 26. So I just like that, that you can mention, hey, repentance is the thing that's preached here. It seems like repentance is pretty important for the kingdom of God. For people being kingdom citizens, repentance is important. So... This is where you get some of that eschatology. I said, you know, the coming of the kingdom, but I also had a little thing under there. Kingdom has come now and not yet. You know, the disciples, he tells them, them, pray, hey, pray for your daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread, but also that his kingdom may come. It's a very future-like prayer. Jesus is already here. 
he's part of the kingdom, right? He's the king. That's at least part of the kingdom. And yet some of the kingdom hasn't come. So it's been set in motion. It hasn't been fully manifested. Jesse gave the great view of it the other night, that if you were to go up to one of these mountains and bend and look out, you'd see a lot of little lava buttes, lots of hills. Each of them might be a little part of the kingdom or another part of the kingdom coming in, but it's all of them together that make up the whole kingdom. Other people might talk about the waves on the beach, and certainly Acts 2, the kingdom coming, the church beginning on earth, beginning of Christianity, that's a huge wave of the kingdom coming. Jesus is another huge wave. All right. So you asked if it came yet, and Becky would say no. Matthew 4, 17. We could go to the next slide. Hannah, would you read that for us? (laughs) (laughs) From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Very similar, right? It's at hand, it's come near, so did the kingdom come with Jesus? Well, here, Jesus says it's come near. And other times, Jesus will say, hey, if I cast out demons and the demons are cast out, then the kingdom of God has come, and and, hey, Jesus did that. So, here, we like to emphasize this because we are emphasizing the church. We are emphasizing the kingdom coming and the beginning of the Christian church. So, did it come with Jesus? Well, Jesus says it's coming near. He also says repent. In fact, the word right here in Greek for that, um, him beginning to preach, is kerosene, if I'm saying that right. I don't think I am. (laughs) K-E-R-U-S-S-E-I-N. But that's the word for a herald's proclamation from a king. And again, it's back to that sort of Isaiah 40 type um, type of thing of a messenger coming and proclaiming the kingdom, fulfillment of scripture. So again, as you can tell, we're already 30 minutes into the study. We're halfway through the study. It's a long study. So you want to be going through some of these scriptures quickly. Mark 9, chapter 1. Okay. All yours, Ron. Mark 9, 1. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Awesome. King of God will come with power. What else do you get from this scripture? Well, some will not taste death. Some will not die yet. Say, so, okay, just remember that. Some aren't going to die when the kingdom of God comes. Um, it also makes me think, not part of the study, but Matthew 24, 34. Aside from Revelation, this is one that a premillennial pre-millennial person would love to go to, Jesus talking about destruction of the temple. Um, But it says there, uh, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. All these prophecies coming into the kingdom. John chapter 3, 1 through 7. This is where we talk about how does one enter the kingdom of God with Nicodemus. Ren, would you mind reading that one for us? Or (laughs) Renee? Not Ren. Uh, One through seven. Yes. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked? 
Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. Awesome. So, Becky, how do you enter the kingdom of God? Well, you enter it by new birth, by baptism. And the original Christians' radical change of lifestyle, if you looked at the early Christians, a new name, even, becoming a disciple, becoming that priest, that mm -hmm. royal priesthood, becoming the saint, sort of footnote, but Acts 14.22 also talks about coming into the kingdom, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is often entered by hardships. Just a footnote. Luke chapter 17, 20 through 21. Want to grab that for us, Jesse? And it could be read up here or in your what translation. being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, Here it is, or... There it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, Great. I, and I, I think I quoted the scripture at my baptism. I was very inspired, and I quoted it as, The kingdom of God is within you. That was very empowering for me. Yeah, kingdom of God is within me. I'm about to receive it. That's, if you ever seen the great dictator Charlie Chaplin, quotes it. So 17th chapter of St. Luke says the kingdom is within you. And he empowers all the people. So I said, yeah, but more modern translations doesn't say within you. Um, in your midst. Kingdom God is among you. This is a great opportunity to emphasize King Jesus. Great opportunity to emphasize yes, on the one hand, it is a spiritual kingdom. It's not going to come with banners. It's not going to come with a bunch of tanks. It's not going to come with a huge government in a physical way or a huge political way. That's not going to be the kingdom of God. It's going to be spiritual. But if Jesus were to say right here, the kingdom of God is within you, you kind of got to imagine, okay, was he saying this and pointing to the Pharisees? Why would he say the kingdom of God is in the Pharisees? That doesn't quite make sense if you look at it that way. But the kingdom of God is near, is among you, well, that makes sense, because Jesus is right there. All the disciples are right there. All of these followers of Jesus, they're all right there. The kingdom is coming to their midst. They're starting to cast out demons and do all of these things and beginning to fulfill these prophecies. The Pharisees couldn't see it. It's been said this way, if you want to get to know the kingdom, you should get to know the king. And some people might be there. Some people might be at a place of studying out the kingdom where you should show them, hey, the kingdom is like a man who found a treasure in a field. Or the kingdom is like a little, a little mustard seed that's going to grow and get really big. And you might want to show them these parables to better, better illustrate the kingdom of God. Jesus said, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you about the Pharisees. This is also said, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's over in Matthew 12, 28. You know, another translation of this, um, when they say, uh, it's not something that can be observed, the kingdom of God. There's a translation of that of, better said, let me pull it up here. 
Examination, there we go. A hostile examination is what he's telling the Pharisees. You can't come in here and demand this hostile physical kingdom, what they were looking for. Saying, no, the prostitutes are going to enter the kingdom ahead of you. They can see the kingdom. They see that this is a kingdom for holy priests, not for Pharisees right here. So, we have King Jesus. We have that it's a spiritual kingdom. Let's go to the next slide. Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 19. Amanda, could you grab that? Yes. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, him. Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Awesome. Two big things you can emphasize here. One is, of course, Jesus. Who do you say I am? And if somebody's struggling with faith in Jesus, what better scripture to show them than this? Other thing you can emphasize, this is the first place that the word for church is mentioned. Jesus talks about the church. Hey, this is when the church is going to begin. You can also clear up some things around Peter. You know, we often like to say, hey, Peter, Petra. You know, Petra means rock. The name Peter means rock. But better translated, Peter kind of means like little pebble, you know, and, and we know the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ, amen? He is the rock, you know, Jesus is the rock. He's the foundation of the church. Peter himself will later say, Jesus is the cornerstone. We're the living bricks within the temple. Jesus is the cornerstone of it. So some people would like to emphasize Peter as, hey, look, he was given so much authority here. He was the first pope. Well, later, people would try to bow down to Peter. He'd say, no, no, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. Modern folks, they would allow, some of them would allow people to bow down to them. Peter was also married. You could mention that. Um, popes nowadays say they should be celibate. But Petra means a little pebble. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is the mountain. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says this, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already made, which is Jesus Christ. Peter gets the keys, amen? Keys to the kingdom. Keys are for what? For opening a door. They're going to open something. We see this happen in Acts 2 for the Jews, Acts 10 for the Gentiles. Let's go to the next slide. And that's another point where the keys to the kingdom is something that uh, imaginations have been captured with for centuries, I think. And, um, but we're going to see what the scripture actually talks about Peter using the keys. Amen. Luke 23, 50 through 51. Uh, Max, you got that for us? Yeah. It says, uh, Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. 
He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Awesome. Jesus crucified, uh, Joseph of Arimathea helps provide the tomb for Jesus. Very loving, serving thing to do. But he's waiting for the kingdom of God to come still. He's saying, hey, where is it? Is he supposed to come on power? I know Jesus was here, but where's the kingdom of God? I, I know he had a bunch of fishermen following him, and they kind of looked like the kingdom of God to me. They're pretty holy guys, but where's the kingdom of God? He's, he's sitting on the bus stop. The bus has not come yet. Luke 24, 44-49. AJ. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from God. Awesome. Here you can say, hey, Jesus is calling himself the Messiah. In fact, when he talks about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's the Old Testament. And in Jesus, he fulfilled all of the moral obligations, all of the legal obligations. The person in Jesus fulfilled all of the Old, all of the Old Testament. All of those messianic prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's a great opportunity to go into that. Or if somebody's struggling on how Old Testament, New Testament fit together, you say, well, yeah, Jesus came to establish the New Covenant. Not to take away from the Old Covenant. You could go over to Matthew 5, 17, I believe, for very similar language of how Jesus came to fulfill the Scriptures, not to dash them aside. Repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So, Becky, where is it going to begin? Well, in Jerusalem. Jesus tells them to stick in the city. Stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Again, is the kingdom going to come in a powerful way, Becky? Yeah, right there. Awesome. Let's go over see the kingdom of God come with power. But right before that, Acts 1. Sometimes the old studies, they'll say, okay, read all of Acts 1. You don't necessarily need to read all of Acts 1, especially for the sake of time. But it's good to start at the beginning of Acts 1. And Madison, would you read that for us? Just Acts 1, the first uh, eight verses there. Yep. <clears throat> In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Awesome. After Jesus' resurrection, before his ascension, what was he talking about, Becky? Well, the kingdom of God. So if King Jesus is going around talking about the kingdom of God, what should we probably be talking about? Kingdom of God. It's important to talk about. 
Verse 4, he says, don't leave Jerusalem again. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is coming for you guys. There, verse 7, he says, it'll come with power. It's going to, I'll just read verse 7. said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. Verse 8, that's what I was looking for. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. At this point, you could mention, well, hey, Judas had tasted death. That's one person who died before at least the Acts 2 stage of the kingdom would come. Fulfills that prophecy of scripture. So at this point, you have Peter with about 120 disciples. That's what the church looks like. They're gathering around, they're waiting, they're spending time with Jesus, right? It says for 40 days after, after he came back. Pentecost is about to come. Penta means 50. It's 50 days after the Lord's Supper took place. 50 days after the Passover festival was the festival of Pentecost. It's also kind of cool, referring back to Exodus 19, when they were about to fulfill the, the um, not fulfill, when they were about to start the covenant at Sinai, Pentecost is remembering that, when we entered the covenant with God. So the 72 that were appointed, they're probably around at this time. This is about 10 days after his ascension, and again, within 50 days, it'll be Pentecost. So it marks them receiving the law from Sinai. We could go to the next one here, and I do have a slide of Acts 2. Um, let's just jump to the next slide real quick, actually. I'll go ahead and read this one for time's sake. Those who accepted his message were baptized. Well, let's open up to Acts 2. Amen. I think I cherry-picked right there, and we should start a little sooner. <laughs> we should see what that message is from Peter. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. And tongues means other languages. They weren't just talking babble to one another. And look, hey, remember we talked about what John said, you'd be baptized with fire and the Holy Spirit? Well, what does this sound like? Verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation. If you actually go back to the last slide. From every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, uh, Phygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. All those Jews from all those places, you can see an illustration here, it is most of the nations of the known world right there. The Roman world, all of the God-fearing Jews coming in for the Pentecost festival. And Peter said this to them, 
Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even all my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So if Becky's somebody you're studying with, and Becky isn't too strong on the gospel message yet, it's a good opportunity to slow this down and say he's saying all these Jews from all these places, they put Jesus on the cross. They did this. I saw the Lord, uh, David said this about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your joy in your presence. He says, hey, David died and was buried. He was a prophet. He knew God. Promised an oath. And uh, promised an oath that he would place on the hands of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father, promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, if somebody is really into prophecy, this is awesome because there's three or four prophecies from the Old Testament fulfilled right here. Hey, this is said about the throne of David. Hey, Jesus is on the throne of David. He's seated at the right hand of God. All of this stuff is being fulfilled right here. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And that's our memory scripture for this week. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There's a lot to unpack there. Say, hey, this is the beginning of the Christian church. There wasn't a building around, amen, because the church is the people, people of God, is the baptized, is those coming into it, is those who have received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on high, they were baptized, had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have a, um, verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. 
and gives instructions of what they should do. What should our response to the kingdom be when he goes into baptism? When it says, therefore, it's very important because of that whole chapter that we just read, because of Jesus dying on the cross, you've got to say, what is it therefore? Well, therefore, we're going to do this. Then you talk about what does the beginning of the Christian church look like? I believe we all know it, so I'll just say it's verse 42 through 47. Fellowship of believers. You can say this, if this, Becky, is the way the church began, if this is the blueprint of the church, the way God wanted it to be, so they were closest to the source, to it starting right there, then how, how closely should we try to match it? Well, we should match it pretty closely. This is an opportunity to talk about, hey, remember how we talked about being a disciple, being a royal priesthood, how, you know, kingdoms of the world, people try to acquire wealth, but kingdom of God, you know, when we look at the Beatitudes, that's not going to be the kingdom of God. We're not chasing after those things. Well, people in churches that you know about, does it look like this church right here? Does it look like the blueprint? Becky might say, no, it doesn't. I don't know if I've seen those people in the kingdom of God yet. Well, Becky, do you want to be a part of the kingdom of God? Becky isn't baptized. Do you want to enter the kingdom of God? Yeah, I do. Well, let's study that out. Remember, we talked about how you enter it. It's going to take hardships. It's going to take a new birth. If Becky's in a place where she says, yeah, I'm really not going to a church that seems like they're living out this kingdom lifestyle, this repentance, this holy priest type of lifestyle. You know, all, all these fishermen who weren't perfect, but they were committed in following Jesus. I don't think I see people following that or following Jesus in that way. Classically, I would turn here then over to seek first the kingdom. Matthew chapter 6, right? 33, right? But I like turning now to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. We could go over to that slide. Lewis, would you read that for us? Yeah. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Awesome. So I skipped over emphasizing with Becky that all of the scriptures were fulfilled right there in Acts 2. Um, some had not tasted death. It had come with power. It was in Jerusalem. All nations streaming to that mountain we talked about, Becky. And, and then here you can see the fulfillment of Exodus 19, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. Hey, this is that holy priesthood he's been talking about. This is that treasured possession he's been talking about. We are the people who should be living that lifestyle that was talked about. So, Becky, it's one thing to believe in this kingdom, to imagine, yeah, okay, I, I believe in these scriptures, it's real. It's one thing to have faith in it. It's another thing to commit to it, to live it. The kingdom of God is given to us by grace, but it will cost us absolutely everything. That's what Jesus says. So, if somebody struggled with discipleship, they kind of struggled with the lordship in that, making Jesus Lord. Kingdom study is a great time to emphasize Jesus is the king. This is the lifestyle. We talked about discipleship. It's the same thing right here. In fact, it's even loftier terms than some of the things we throw out in discipleship. It talks about being the royal priesthood.
could even talk about the love of Jesus through that gospel message in Acts 2. And again, right here, if we are his special possession, how does that make you feel? He wants you to be part of his kingdom. He wants you to be that special possession. It says this in Philippians 3.20, But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. That's where we are now. And it, as it said here several times um, in the beginning of Acts, it says, okay, this is the last days. We have our citizenship both here on earth when we enter the church, also in heaven. Heavenly kingdom that we'll be a part of someday when we're united with Jesus once again. So really the call to, the decision to call Becky to at the end of the scriptures, do you want to be a part of the kingdom? Do you want to study that out further? If Jesus is your Lord, if he is your king, if he is the reign, the ruler in your life, then don't you want to come out and see people who are citizens in that kingdom? See how they live out that lifestyle. And that's the study of the kingdom of God. Permissible as a study after baptism. If somebody's already living this lifestyle, if they say, yeah, I, I love Pentecost, I love how devoted they were right there, then okay, they get it. Thanks for listening to the Bend ICOC podcast.